often reminding you, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me, um, especially as we look at a passage as uh, we have before us this morning. Luke 8, verses 40 to 56. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 866. And before we do look at God's Word, let me just again briefly pray for us, and then we will jump in and pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but that you have given us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We acknowledge with the psalmist this morning that the entrance of your word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. And we pray, our God, that you would give us such light and such understanding that you would shine the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus into our hearts, that you would make us to see the Savior, to hear him, to trust him, to follow him, and to obey him. We pray, our God, that you would give us a greater sense of all that you've done for us in Christ, and that you would carry us on to glory. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. Luke, the beloved physician, tracing the ministry of the Lord Jesus, Now writes, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden... She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a story about a man living in London at the time of the Second World War. And as bombs were dropping on London and one fell on the building in which he and his very young son were living, the story goes that that man took his very uh, young son by the hand and they ran and he saw a shell hole not far from where the building was, and he began running to that, and he jumped in, and he turned to his son, and he said, now jump. And his son was frightened and couldn't see the father 
in that place of hiding and refuge, and the little boy said to his father, but I can't see you. And as the story goes, the father looked out and he saw the silhouette of his son and he said, ah, but son, I can see you now jump. Now, that serves as an illustration in some ways of what we have before us in this text. We have here Luke following Jesus. He's tracing the steps of the Savior and Jesus has been doing incredibly mighty miracles. He has most recently calmed the wind and the waves with a word. And he has healed the Gadarene demoniac, the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons that no one could heal, no one could tame, who was cutting himself, who was separated from society, who was living among the dead, and who was chained to the tombs and to the caves where the people had sent him. And as Jesus is moving on further and he is progressing in his messianic ministry, Luke now tells us that as he presses on, He is moving forward, and the crowds are welcoming him. Now, Jesus was immensely popular. Um, It's no wonder no one had ever seen anyone like this. No one had ever seen anyone on the face of the earth do the things that Jesus was doing. And so it's no surprise that Jesus is being surrounded by people. And as he has, and as he is, we see actually two accounts in one in this passage. It's one of those very rare miracles here. You might think that these are separate accounts, But they actually belong together. Luke is strategically telling us about these happenings because God has ordained that these two miracles go together as if they were one miracle, teaching the same purpose to two people at the same time in different places and in different ways with different experiences and yet in very similar situations. Now, we are going to see this morning as we consider both the healing of this synagogue ruler's daughter, 12-year-old daughter, and the woman who had had the the flow of blood for 12 years, we're going to see how earnest faith is tested by Jesus, and then we're going to see how weakened faith is strengthened by Jesus, and finally we're going to see how persevering faith is rewarded and responded to by Jesus. Earnest faith tested, weakened faith strengthened, and persevering faith responded to by Jesus. We'll notice that Luke tells us as he returns and the crowds are welcoming him and everyone's waiting for him, there comes a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, as this account opens, you think that this is what you're going to hear about. Here comes a synagogue ruler. And that's a fairly significant thing uh, because not many who were religiously Uh, motivated or who had positions of religious authority or who were in some sense engaged in full-time synagogue ministry or priestly ministry during Jesus's ministry believed in him. Uh, He was a threat to the religious establishment. Jesus was not welcomed. He was not welcomed with outstretched arms by the religious establishment in Israel. And yet here's a man who is himself the ruler of this local synagogue. He is no doubt a man of uh, reputation and wisdom and knowledge, a man who is extremely learned, a man who is respected by the people, a man to whom the people come to for spiritual uh, counsel and who uh, this man is, he's a pastor at the local congregation. And probably in this day, Different than in our day, this man was probably rich. They paid the religious leaders quite well in Israel um, in this day and age. And so here's a man who's coming to Jesus, and, um, and there's a sense in which, as you read this, you might think, all right, here, things are taken off now. Good. Now the religious leaders are coming to Jesus. 
Now maybe Jesus is going to get some of that respect, some of that social clout that he deserves. And yet, no sooner does this man come and he falls down at Jesus' feet and he begs Jesus to come to his house and to heal his daughter, who he loved and cared for so dearly, that the crowds press around Jesus and there is a divine distraction, as it were, happening in this account. Now, this man has a little girl. We don't know if he has other uh, children. Uh, Luke tells us that it is the only daughter that he has. Um, I have three sons, and for years people have asked me if I want a daughter, and I say, I guess so. And then they tell me how much I'm missing out on not having a daughter. And I get it. If you have daughters, I I understand there is some sort of precious and special connection between a daddy and a little girl. I see all the pictures of the daddy-daughter dances on Facebook. I get it. To some sense, I get it. And here's a man who had this uh, 12-year-old daughter who was very dear to him and who was very ill at the point of death, and he can't do anything for her. He can't help her. Um, He has no doubt taken her to doctors. Um, There have been attempts to pray over her, no doubt, and to pray for her, and yet nothing has happened. And he has heard about this healing uh, rabbi, as it were, Jesus, and he comes to him, and he falls down before him, and he begs him to come and heal her. Um, It is earnest faith. And it's been said that uh, when Jesus gets interrupted by the woman and the crowd and this woman that touches him and he turns his attention to her rather than to this man's little girl, um, this, this seems like spiritual malpractice. Why would Jesus not just go forward? Why would he stop? Why would he not give this man what he wants? I mean, after all, this man is coming to Jesus with earnest faith. He's coming believing that Jesus can heal her of her infirmity. And he's coming knowing that Jesus could do something for her and Jesus uh, allows himself to be distracted and sidetracked and interrupted. Um, Jesus is going to be, as we'll see at the end of this passage, he is testing this man's faith. Um, he, is, he is trying to bring this man along through hardships and further difficulties to see if this man will press on perseveringly through the testing of faith. Uh, one writer uh, will contrast this man with the woman that we see in the same account who, as the crowds are pressing around him, we see that there is another person and she has an infirmity of 12 years. It's very interesting, the parallels. The little girl is 12. The woman has had this infirmity as long as that little girl has been alive. Um, there are other parallels that we'll talk about. And yet there is a contrast between the man coming to Jesus, the synagogue ruler, and the woman who knows her need for Jesus and who reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. Uh, On the one hand, you have a man who, in Jesus' day, in a patriarchal society, um, would have had some preference to women. You don't like that? I'm sorry. That's the way society was. And... um, Here is a woman who doesn't seem to have the clout that a religious leader would have. Um, In fact, she seems like she's alone. She's ostracized. She probably doesn't have a husband because Luke tells us that she spends all of her money on doctors. It was her own money. 
She doesn't have anyone to care for her. Presumably she has no children. She is unclean because of the flow of blood that she has. Leviticus uh, 25, God in his ceremonial law had said that if a woman had a flow of blood that went past her normal time period of that cycle, that she was considered unclean. She couldn't go into the synagogue, that anything that she touched was unclean and anyone who touched her was unclean. Um, There is a theological reason for that. If you ask me after worship, I'll tell you what I think it is. But nevertheless, that was part of God's law. That was part of God's word. Uh, This woman is both alone and she is socially ostracized. She is religiously ostracized. She is completely opposite of this religious leader. And she's fearful. Um, She is despondent and she is fearful. One writer has contrasted these two individuals. He says, here we have the anxiety of the father and the timidity of the woman. We have the restlessness of the people and the composure of the savior. We have the laugh of unbelief and the outbreak of sorrow. We have the majesty of revealing and the care of concealing. We have the miraculous power of Jesus and the weakness of those coming to Jesus for help. Everything is a contrast in this parallel. Everything is a contrast in this passage. Here is a man, here is a woman, here is a religious man, here is a poor ostracized woman. Here are two that find themselves absolutely helpless and realize that they don't have anything in themselves or anyone to go to, but they come to Jesus and they come to him in earnest faith and he is going to test the faith of both of them. It's absolutely astonishing. He is going to do the exact same thing for both of them, even though their cases are unique and different. Now, there's this wonderful lesson in this account for us. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, The Touch, which is on this passage, says, We never know when God blesses us how much blessing he is incidentally bestowing on others. It may be that even our conversion had a far-reaching but very distinct connection with the conversion of others. You see, what, what Spurgeon's saying is, as you look at this passage, Jesus is not being carried around arbitrarily as if he doesn't know what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. He stops for the woman who touches the hem of the garment, and he doesn't go and heal the little girl because he knows exactly what he needs to do in that moment, and he's testing the faith of both of them, and both of them wonder why, in one sense, he doesn't come and help them. They can't understand why God is doing what he's doing in their lives, and yet both of them become the recipients of God's grace, and both of them benefit one another even as he heals One, in order to do a greater miracle of healing for the other. Now, Spurgeon says what he says because so often we are like the father in the hole. We look at our lives. Those with us are with us. They don't understand. How many times, how many times have you had conversations with people and you have prefaced it by saying, I just don't understand why? I just don't understand why. I don't understand why this is happening. I've, I've said those very words far too many times in life. I just don't understand why. Why would God allow this? Why isn't this going better? Why are these people causing me so much grief? Because it's usually other people who are causing the problems. You're supposed to laugh at that. Why? And 
Here, there is a sense in which we have to learn that we have to go to Jesus in earnest and with a true and a lively and informed faith and trust him even when and especially when we don't know why things are the way they are around us. You know, if you had all the answers why, you would never trust Jesus. If everything was going well, it's very interesting, isn't it? As we were going through the Gospels, you notice that um, the people that come to Jesus, the people that are healed by Jesus, the people that are redeemed by Jesus are the people who come to an end of themselves and can't help themselves. And they recognize that. They recognize it. They recognize that they don't have any more resources to carry them through the uncertainties of the circumstances of life, and so they go to Christ. I think it's fascinating There's not one person in the gospel records that I can think of that comes to Jesus whose life is not in some sense in shambles. And there's not one person who comes to Jesus who doesn't get the healing for which they come to him. Even when and especially when they can't see why things are the way they are in their lives. Now you get the sense that this woman's faith has been tested. I mean, here is... As we've said already, here's a woman who doesn't seem to have anything, and she's been plagued by unbelievable burdens in life. Twelve years, she's had this unstoppable flow of blood. And, and Luke tells us that she's gone to doctors and she's spent everything that she had. Um, there's a picture there of how the world will take from you everything that you have. There's a picture there that people you think that care about you don't care about you. I was telling someone in the congregation this week that during my years of rebellion— And there were many years for me of of dark rebellion. My mom, who was an exceedingly godly woman, used to say to me, Nick, none of your friends are actually your friends, and none of them actually really care about you. And she was right. The world will take from you. Um, The world will use you. The world will disappoint you. Um, Others will hurt you, and you will hurt others. That's the reality of life. This woman knew the burdens of that in the midst of the sincere faith in which she comes to Jesus. She is a woman who was weighed down and burdened 12 long years. You can imagine that she had gone to one doctor after another doctor after another doctor because this doctor disappointed her and that doctor disappointed her and this doctor disappointed her and that doctor disappointed her. And yet there's something wonderful. She had not given up hope that God could heal her. This woman is remarkable. Um, It's as if she is holding on to the last remnants of hope that she could be healed. And she hears about Jesus, just like Jairus heard, and she goes to him, and she is, you imagine, hiding behind people in the crowd and reaches out to touch the hem of his garment Because one of the gospel writers says she thinks to herself, if I may only touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Now, she will be made well. But then there's this this strange interaction where Jesus is testing her faith. He calls her out. Um, It's as if he moves the crowd to the side and he says... Now, I want this woman to come forward, and I want her faith to be seen for what it is. Um, 
Jesus often does that with us. You know, I hate difficult situations. I was telling somebody yesterday, I am a pleasure seeker. I like comfort and pleasure. I, I enjoy things that make me feel good. Um, I am sure you share that <laughs> conviction with me. I would rather have easy situations than hard situations. I would rather everything go well and everything just progress for me in life, just, just on and on and on, better and better and better. And you know, the world around you tells you, if you just believe in yourself, if you just make the right decisions, if you just do this, if you just position yourself, if you just know the right people, if you just go to the right schools, if you just say the right things, then you can just have a better and a better and a better and better life. And, and thankfully, God interrupts that. You know, 12 years before she meets Jesus, God interrupted this woman's life. And God interrupted the life of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, by bringing his little girl to the place of sickness. God's sovereign over all of that. If you don't believe that, you will never make it through when the hardships come. If you do not believe that the infinite God was sovereign over these two individuals and the circumstances of their life, you will never make it through. You will not make it. You will fold under and you will be destroyed by it. God is ordering these events and Jesus is testing the faith of these individuals for the better good and for his glory and so that people see what a, what a compassionate Savior is, what a powerful Savior he is, what an able Savior he is. He is testing their faith to show us something about his own glory. Now, there's one more thing in the test. Um, Jesus could have spoken a word and, and healed the little girl. He did that with Jairus' daughter. Remember, there was another ruler. He was a Gentile. This is a Jewish ruler. But he doesn't speak a word. He's testing the earnestness and the sincerity of this man's faith to see whether this man really is going to trust him and know who he is and know what he can do. And so he begins to go to his house. He allows himself to be interrupted. He allows one miracle to work on another. Charles Spurgeon says, like the sun, he shines while he pursues his course and every beam is full of grace. Isn't it amazing? doesn't look like anything's under the control of the Savior in this passage. Uh, Jesus seems to be uh, just carried along, and yet everything is a perfect display of his grace. Everything is ordered perfectly. Everything in your life is ordered perfectly. I want that to sink in this morning, because I know you don't believe that, because I don't believe that. When the hardships happen, I don't think, man, my life is ordered perfectly. I think, Lord, just take these burdens away. Give me something better. Everything in these people's lives is ordered perfectly as Jesus is bringing them to a place where their faith will come forth and he will be glorified in them and by what they're doing. Now, we see, secondly, that weak in faith is strengthened. Um, there is a picture of weak faith both in the ruler and in the woman. It's very interesting uh, that the... The ruler comes to Jesus, and he believes that Jesus is able to heal the sickness of his daughter, but he doesn't come like the centurion, as we've said. He doesn't come saying, just speak a word, and my daughter will be made well. There's a sense where you get that his faith is in embryonic form, that it's small, that he's, he's hopeful maybe this one I've heard about, 
maybe this one who others have said he's healed, maybe this one that others who have even come to my synagogue and have been healed by him has been said to have healed them, maybe he can do something for me. And the woman comes to Jesus, and you would think that her faith is marvelous, but there's a measure of superstition mixed in with what this woman does. I'm convinced that what this woman does has a touch of superstition. If I can just touch the hem of his garment as if there was like magical powers in Jesus' clothes, I'll be made well. It was a weak faith. Um, there was a mixture. You know, I think that's true for us. I think it's true, certainly for me, and I'm guessing if you're honest with yourself, you would say it's true for you that when we go to the Lord and we call on him and we commit ourselves to him and we cry out to him and we commit our ways to him, there's a sense where there's a great deal of weakness and there may even be those thoughts, did he even hear me? Is he, is he going to help me? Is he going to bring me through this? Um, maybe even... Has he really forgiven my sins? Because at the end of the day, the big need of Jairus and this woman were not the healings that they undergo, but it's the salvation of their souls. Um, there, is a, there is a weakness that in their faith that Jesus is strengthening. Um, now, I want us to consider not just the testing of the faith and the weakness of the faith, but but the end goal. What is Jesus doing through these circumstances? What is he trying to teach the woman with the flow of blood when he calls her out and he points her out and singles her out? What is he trying to teach the ruler of the synagogue when he delays and allows his daughter to die? And then in the midst of the scoffing and the persecution and the mocking and the deriding of the crowds around them, He raises that little girl from the dead and cares for her physical needs. What is he teaching them? Well, he's teaching them that he loves to respond to persevering faith. I want us to consider again this morning the state of this woman. This woman had spent 12 years going to doctors. I, I, over the last year, have seen more doctors in a short period of time, much to the dismay of my wife, uh, than, and myself than I ever have done in the rest of my life. And I've realized very quickly that the ideas I had about doctors when I was a little boy are very far from what they actually are. When, when you're a little child, you think doctors walk on water. You think that they can cure everybody and that if anything goes wrong, they can take care of it. Um, doctors, uh, even in our day, a lot of times will just say, hey, take this and see if it helps. And if it doesn't, come back and see me again and spend more money. It was even worse in these days. In these days, uh, there was so much superstition surrounding the medical practices. The Talmud, one of the Jewish uh, writings and the way we know so much of Jewish history outside of the Bible from the ancient Near East, uh, would talk about some of the medical practices that might be used on a woman like this. And in one case, uh, they said that uh, certain mixtures and potions should be given to her mixed with wine. And then um, if, if these different, uh, what we might call superstitious practices, didn't work, the doctor should sneak up behind her, this is real, while she was drinking the wine and try to scare her. And that would heal her of this flow of blood. Um, now we know that heals some people's hiccups. Um, 
But 120 years ago, they were still drilling into people's brains 200 years ago when they had a headache. (laughs) Uh, They were using leeches, thinking that they would heal people. This woman has been through everything. Uh, They've given her every kind of natural, probably, and uh, superstitious forms of healing. She probably smells like uh, she's purchased every essential oil, and, and she has tried it all. She tried it all, she tried every kind of doctor, and it would be easy for her to give up, and it would be easy for her to say, there's no more hope. And yet, this woman perseveres, and she perseveres in getting herself to Jesus. This is remarkable. Here's a woman who is not allowed to touch other people or be touched by other people. Here's a woman that can't go into the synagogue. Here's a woman that can't come into close contact with people. Here's a woman who Luke says the doctors actually made her infirmity worse and that she would have been less, uh, less bothered and less harmed if she had stayed away from all the doctors. And yet she presses through all the obstacles and a crowd of people that are keeping her from Jesus to reach out and to touch the Savior. Uh, Eric Alexander says there's a vital aspect of faith that goes on asking until it receives, seeking until it finds, knocking until the door is open. This woman teaches us the importance of persevering to get through the crowd and to get to Jesus. You will never get the spiritual healing that you need in your soul unless you press through the obstacles and you get to Jesus. It's not enough for you to sit here every week and have me or someone else tell you who Jesus is and what he did. I'm going to say that cautiously. You could sit your whole life under sound preaching, the knowledge of Christ crucified and risen. You could hear sermons every Lord's Day, never miss a Sunday, and yet in your soul you are not pressing on against every obstacle to get yourself to Jesus. This woman is teaching us an exceedingly valuable lesson. She presses through despite everything that was against us. She presses on, and she gets the thing for which she has come to Jesus, and she gets so much more. Now, Jairus is also going to have that very similar experience. He's going to have to overcome the opposition of the people. After Jesus heals this woman, and then it's told the little girl dies, and Jairus is standing there, and you get the idea, and notice that uh, after he heals this woman, um, we're told that, um, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. So there's a crowd, this incident with this woman has happened, Jesus is now dealing with her, and Jairus, who has come to Jesus first for help, and who might feel like Jesus is doing him an enormous disservice, is standing there impatiently waiting for Jesus to come, just waiting and waiting. And why is he doing this? Why is he dealing with this other person? Why isn't he helping me? Why isn't he coming right now to help my daughter? And someone comes from his house, and he says to Jairus as he's standing around that crowd, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Nothing else can happen. She's dead. And Jesus says to Jairus, upon hearing that, Luke says, only believe and she'll be made well. Now, 
if, you're, if you like to fancy yourself as being one of those scientific types, um, if, if someone you loved was sick and the church gathered and you were praying and praying and praying for healing and praying that God would have mercy and then they died, that's it. Like scientifically, that's it. It's the biggest obstacle, dead. Little girl's dead. The natural course would be for this father to go and mourn for his daughter. Get the funeral procession ready. Go comfort her mother if she's alive. To go be comforted by the other members around him. And yet Jesus is bringing him along to help him see his need for persevering faith. And Jesus meets the obstacle. And he says to this man, only believe and she will be made well. And then there's a further obstacle that this man has to press through. Notice as they come into the house and uh, Jesus uh, puts everyone outside except for Peter and James and John, the, the inner band, the apostolic witnesses he had chosen to be witnesses to what he would do. And, and the father and the mother of the child are here. And, and there's weeping and there's mourning. And, and Jesus says, don't weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Now, that seems ludicrous. Um, the girl is dead. Now Jesus is speaking in enigmatic riddles, like he does so often in Scripture. The girl's not dead, she's sleeping, and the people begin to mock him. This is a further obstacle. The people are mocking him. Um, Somebody's told him, there's nothing Jesus can do for you. Your daughter's dead. Now they're mocking him, and, and they're deriding him. The social pressure of not trusting in Jesus is pressing in now because their friends and their family are mocking the only one that can help them. And, and notice they laugh at him, knowing she was dead. And then Jesus, because of the father's faith, I believe, takes her by the hand and says, Child, arise, and her spirit return. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Now, there is, in this account, so much about perseverance that we could barely, um, we could barely ever scratch the surface Uh, There's a word here for us that we've got to keep trusting Jesus no matter what circumstances he puts in our life, no matter what things seem to be around us, no matter how much we take account of things and say, this is impossible. There's no way we're making this through this. Um, Jesus is really teaching these two, and he's teaching us this morning, that when you come to him, He can do for you so much more than you realize he can do for you. And you will give him so much more than you ever thought you'd give him. I think that's a beautiful thought. When you come to Jesus, you will give him so much more than what you ever thought you would give him. And he will show you that he is able to do so much more than you ever thought he was able to do. What do I mean by that? Well, notice that when he deals with the woman, she's persevered. She's pressed through the crowd. She's touched the hem of his garment. That the discharge of her blood has ceased immediately. Why doesn't Jesus just leave her alone? He could just leave her alone. She could go her way. She doesn't have to tell anyone. If anyone asks her, how are you doing? She could say, I'm better. The flow of blood dried up. She doesn't have to say anything. She doesn't have to tell anyone. When they say, how did this happen? She could just say, I'm just better. She could presumably go on with her life undisturbed, not giving Jesus any more of her 
than what she's already given in reaching out and touching the hem of his garment. But Jesus stops her, he moves the crowd aside, and he makes her confess what she's done, and he makes her confess him publicly. Now, there's a question here when Jesus asks the, the questions who touched me, and I perceive power going out of me, that there have been so many attempts at explaining what's going on. Did Jesus not know what was happening? Can you be healed by Jesus without him knowing that he's healing you? Was there really power in his garments? Uh, when he says, who touched me, did he not really know who touched him? Uh, clearly, Jesus had limited knowledge as a man. As God, he's infinite, he knows everything as man, he has limitations. But it seems that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows exactly who's touched him, and he knows exactly what he's done. This woman came to Jesus with weak faith, and yet she came to him with a real faith, and she came with persevering faith. And she was healed. Jesus healed her. He knew someone had reached out and touched him. And, and when he stops and he says, who's touched me, and everyone in the crowd denies it, and he waits He is doing that to help this woman see what it means to be redeemed by him and what it means to confess him. Phil Riken rightly says, The truest confession of our faith is not a private moment alone with Jesus, but a public witness to his grace. Uh, Jesus himself said, Whoever does not confess me before men, I will not confess him before my Father in heaven. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this life of him, I will be ashamed when I come in the glory of my Father with the angels. The truest confession of our faith is not a private moment alone with Jesus, but a public witness to his grace in our lives. I was converted at 24. Um, I had a pound of weed behind my bed the day I was converted. Maybe I've never told you that. Um, I was living in sin. I still call it that. I know it's not hip and cool to call it that, but I was living in sin. Um, I was dead in sins. I was in a lot of darkness. Um, And the Lord brought me to repentance. And I had two friends who were visiting uh, who were going to buy the pound of weed from me. And, um, And I wept that whole day in front of my drug buddies. And half of them said, I understand, because I kept saying, I'm worried about my soul. I'm worried about my soul. And half of them were like, whatever, man. And I look back at that, and that was nothing I did. I didn't do anything. Jesus drew that out of me. And the day he gave me a new heart, he made me confess him publicly. Now, Those who have been healed by Christ are those that confess Christ. Those who have never been healed by Christ never confess Christ. Those who come to Christ will give Christ more than what they ever thought they'd give him. Not that he needs it, because he doesn't. And those that Jesus heals find that he will give them so much more than what they ever thought he would give them. You see, this woman got so much more than what she was looking for. She just wanted relief from her physical healing, but Jesus gave her salvation. He made her a disciple. Um, Jairus also got so much more than he was looking for. He was looking for Jesus to come and just to get rid of his daughter's fever. And Jesus came and he raised her from the dead. 
and he showed her that he was both savior of soul and body. Here he gives her resurrection healing, and he cares for her. You know, I, just as an aside, the women of the church will appreciate this, I, I think. Um, men usually wouldn't think about feeding a little girl like this. They wouldn't be thinking about her, her need for a meal. Jesus is showing himself to be the complete savior. He's doing the unexpected. He heals her. He takes her by the hand. He touches her. Now, there is a, um, there's a question here. And that question can only be answered when we consider where Jesus is going. Um, this woman was unclean. She couldn't touch someone in that state she was in for 12 years without making them ceremonially unclean. That means they couldn't go to church, couldn't worship the Lord, couldn't be around others. It's like leprosy. Um, Ostracized from society, from family, from friends. Um, It's a picture of what sin does. It's not because of her sin that she's in this condition. It's a picture of sin. Um, Sin strips away our lives. It makes us... Uh, it makes us unclean. And this little girl is unclean when she dies. And there are two touches in this account. The woman reaches out, probably out of fear, probably out of fear of being seen and probably also out of fear of making Jesus unclean. And yet she touches him. And she gets the healing she wants. And he becomes unclean. Now, you say, wait a minute, how does he become unclean? Well, Jesus is going to have to go to the cross to save this woman, and he's going to have to take to himself an unstoppable flow of blood. I don't think that's spiritualizing. Jesus took every infirmity of everyone he healed upon himself at the cross because he wants you to see that physical healing is not the greatest need, but the healing that he gives us for our souls, the clean for the unclean. There's a beautiful picture there of imputation, isn't there? The woman touches Jesus, and there's a picture of the the branch and the vine. Power goes out of him. Her uncleanness goes to him. There's a picture of the great exchange that has to happen. Um, If you are going to be healed by Jesus, your spiritual uncleanness has got to go to him, and his righteousness has got to come to you. And then for the rest of your Christian life, That has to keep happening. For the rest of your Christian life, you have to be abiding in the vine. What you need more than anything if you're a believer is not more discipline, merely more self-control, more of your own righteousness, more good deeds that you are trying to do. You need an impartation of the righteousness of Jesus You need his life-giving sustenance. You need his continual supply of grace and forgiveness. And he will always, because he took all of it at the cross, he takes all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness. Um, I want to challenge you this morning as we consider this passage. Wherever you are in life, whatever, whatever, circumstances God has ordered in your life, um, I want to challenge you to ask yourself the question, am I 
trusting in Jesus Christ? Do I believe that he can help me? Am I going to him in faith, even if it's a mixed faith? Even if it's a weak faith? Am I pressing through the obstacles of those who will mock me for trusting in him, who are constantly telling me in a million different ways that he can't really help me? And are you realizing that when you come to Jesus, you are going to end up giving him so much more than you ever thought you would? When you really come to Jesus, you will end up giving him so much more than you ever thought you would. You're going to give him all your sin. You're going to give him all your burdens. You're going to give him all your worship. You're going to start giving him all your money. You're going to start giving him your life. You're going to stop living for yourself. You're going to start confessing him publicly. You're going to start being unashamed of the Savior. You're going to start saying, that's my Savior. That's the one who, if I just touch the hem of his garment, can make me well. And he is going to give you so much more than you ever thought he could give you. That's the point of this passage. In the midst of all of our inability to see what God is doing, Jesus says, I'm here. Trust me. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that there is so much here for us, and we acknowledge how weak we are. Lord, we recognize the weakness of our own faith, and Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are often listening to the voices of those who might try to keep us from you or looking at the obstacles as if they are insurmountable. We acknowledge that we often have misconceptions. We don't recognize, Lord Jesus, that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. We have not adequately recognized, Lord, that you take all of our uncleanness and you give us all of your power and all of your grace and all of your sustenance, both for this life and for the life to come. We pray, our God, that you would stir us up this morning as we see the Lord Jesus and we see his healing power, and that we might be stirred up to go to him and to confess our sins and to give him our uncleanness and to take from him the grace and mercy that is ours in him alone. Our Father, we pray that you'd help us, especially when you bring difficult situations into our life, to be trusting the only one who can do more than we thought he could. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.